This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Hello, this is the Urban Political. My name is Markus Kipp, and together with my colleague Ross Beveridge, we thank you for tuning in. It is March second, and Russia has been attacking Ukraine for about a week now. Today, we're going to talk about the situation. Of the Ukrainian cities at war, we welcome urban researchers with a focus, and partly also with roots in Ukraine, who will elucidate the current moment for us. These guests, in the alphabetical order of their first names, are Michael Gentile, who works at the Department of Sociology and Human Geography at the University of Oslo. Uh, a few weeks ago, he did research in Mariupol and just came back last night from the Slovak-Ukrainian border, picking up friends. Tatiana Sheshenka, who's affiliated with the Center for East European and International Studies in Berlin, uh, she's originally from Kharkiv and currently calling in from Vienna. And Vlad Michnenko, who's an economic geographer at the University of Oxford, originally from Donetsk, and now with us from Birmingham. We we're very grateful that you have taken the time for this conversation、uh, in these deeply troubling times, and we recognize also your personal affectedness in the situation. And、um, Well, to begin,、uh, we'd like to invite you to share with us how you have experienced、uh, the war so far, and what can you tell us about the situation based on accounts from friends and family members. Beginning with you, Tatiana.、Uh, thank you.、Um, yeah, I must say、um, this. Did not come as a total surprise to us, because the tensions were、uh, rising in in weeks and months before, right? And there was all all this, you know, like、uh, new dates of、uh, possible invasion were announced, and and、um, people were waiting, but then nothing would happen, and and then the new dates were. Uh, announced and and of course this created a lot of tensions and and some people started to leave the country before yeah those who had resources those who had who had、um, families relatives、uh, somewhere in Europe、um, who could afford、uh, to work from、um, abroad、uh, you know in home office、uh, people who had an opportunity. For example, to to move to their relatives in Western Ukraine, so there was some kind of、um, feeling that something is coming.、Uh, and and honestly, I had a,、uh, several conversations with my friends in Kharkiv, like two days before the invasion, telling them that they, if they decide to leave the country, they can. Stay with me and and、uh, in Vienna and try to convince them. But the decision to leave everything behind and flee is a difficult one, and people、uh, do it when it's、uh, an they are an imminent 
danger, right? So I um, woke up uh, at night, uh, I don't know, at five in the morning, and I looked in in uh, in the internet. This is something <laughs> I used to do a lot during the Evramaidan in, uh, eight years ago, but now we are all back to this habit to check social networks and the news like every half an hour. And, and I saw that, that it has started and I started to contact my friends and colleagues and um, part of my family is still there. And uh, yeah, so the, the main message was, hold on, I'm with you. I would like to be with you. Um, uh, we think about you, tell me if you need something. But this is, of course, uh, also an expression of hopelessness because what can you do uh, from Vienna for people uh, being shelled and, and attacked uh, and, and experiencing now in the last two days airstrikes and uh, uh, being shelled with ballistic missiles and, and uh, I mean... It's um, beyond any imagination what is what is happening there and the pictures we see and the videos. Uh, well, I mean, it's my ho um, hometown. It's uh, the place where I was born and, and lived until I was uh, 35, until I moved to Vienna. And I, I know every corner of this city and uh, watching it like uh, being devastated building for building, it's, um, uh, I must say, it's a <laughs> something you don't want uh, to experience. <laughs> so, Tatiana, um, you you speak about Kharkiv. Um, can you give us a sense of how, the, how people have spent, your friends, your family has spent the last few days? How did a day look like for them in Kharkiv? Yeah, uh, actually, um, they all report that uh, they they are hiding in cellars most of the time. They go back to their apartments because they need to change clothes. They want to eat something. They want maybe to 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 drink tea, to maybe to have some sleep. But they all complain that you cannot sleep longer than one two hours because there are all all these um, alarms going on again and again. And um, so some people feel more exposed because um, uh, they are in big residential apart uh, blocks here. Yeah? And, and uh, some of the houses are um, closer to strategic objects, which are um, obviously the, the target of the Russian um, um, attack like i don't know military all object, uh, objects the military academy military colleges uh, uh, headquarters of the police of the uh, security service so this is what what they are trying to target they also targeted the oblast uh, administration building yesterday uh, the square in front of the oblast administration so they try to destroy the infrastructure, but they also shell um, residential areas where there is nothing except for for um, uh, for, for residential 
yeah, houses where people just leave uh, civilians or nothing, no crucial infrastructure to, to target. And of course, uh, after five days of such a life, you can imagine how people are psychologically exhausted. They, they uh, st actually start to experience lack of um, basic things. Yeah. So some people wrote me, we have no money. Uh, and, and I uh, tried to transfer some money. And uh, otherwise they have to go out to get some food, um, to get some uh, medicine maybe, to get water, uh, because in Kharkiv we used to, the fact that you cannot drink water from the tap, yeah? the, the quality of the water is too bad and people used to buy it, like to drinking water and water for cooking, we usually like were buying in big uh, plastic bottles, yeah. So I don't know, maybe, <clears throat> uh, yeah, so um, what else? It's just, I think it's it's horrible because you, you are not in control of your life and, and what are you doing is you are surviving all the time and um, still I must say, I uh, I talk to my friends and, and they try to, they make jokes, they, they try to, to support me and they say everything will be okay. And um, some people cook food for uh, those who I need and try to, to help to distribute this food. Um, people take care of their pets, you know, so many people have cats and dogs and and. Uh, uh, they are terrified by, by this bombing. So this, in the same way as people are terrified and children are terrified, you also have uh, like <laughs> your pets are, are getting crazy yeah? and, and they also need to be fed. And um, this is just a small detail, but it, I think it's, um, yeah. Okay. I, could go on like that, but I think... Um... Thank you, Tatiana. Um, maybe, Vlad, do you, do you want to continue? You're, you're calling in from Birmingham, but you also, as you mentioned er earlier and before the recording, that you are in daily contact with friends and families in the Ukraine. Could, could you give us some impression about the experiences that that have been conveyed to you so I, i've got uh i think the war has started for me in 2014 and for a lot of people from the donbas region with family in the donbas itself so there is a difference i think some difference in our perceptions of the current uh invasion previous to the you know to the 2014 one i have um cousins in mariupol and they've been hiding in, in deep cellars uh, since since day one, effectively, because Mariupol has been shelled continuously in a very various ways and and is uh, been attempt well, attempted to be encircled by the Russian forces from all or from three sides. Uh, the connection is still the telephone connection is still working, or at least was working a couple of days ago. So I know that they're trying to survive as much as they can, although the situation is quite dire in Mariupol in terms of the humanitarian, obviously, situation. Uh, I have uh, parents who on day one managed to get out of Kiev 
as far as about 20 miles down south to a, a village where they have a second home and they're hiding there. Uh, as you as you would expect, we, you know, you think of a peaceful village and you never think that maybe there is an airfield installation a couple of miles down the road or there is a, you know, oil depot just just there. You, you haven't, you know, you haven't been thinking about this in normal peaceful times. And I think it's a little tiny village. It'll be beautiful and you can, you can sort of escape there. Well, unfortunately, there is all the military strategic things around it. And, and, and so they've been quite affected by, by, uh, by Russian paratroopers attempt or real 76 on day two attempt landing, which was uh, derailed, but lots of bombing of airfields, oil depot was hit on day two. Uh, so they, they've been affected even, even been outside of Kiev. And uh, my, my, my brother and his family uh, managed to get on day one to Lviv, as far as Lviv, and they're now, now in Lviv. So uh, my, my, my thoughts are about people in, 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 in big cities like Kiev, like Kharkiv, of course, like Mariupol, like Chernihiv, uh, Sumy, and, 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 and all the other kind of no central, northern, eastern Ukrainian cities, which have been now bombarded and encircled by the Russian troops. Uh, and, and the, you know, the supplies, petrol, food, uh, as we know now, the Russians are trying to hit uh, electricity and heating installations, so that uh, trying to freeze, obviously, the big cities uh, to to force them to surrender effectively. Uh, so my my heart goes out to people living on you know in, in the underground in, in in Kiev for seven days and having to urinate on the rails. Uh, that's I think with with children and everything else. I think that is uh, a biggest probably shock uh, from from me personally is the circumstances people live in. I have friends are begging for money. I've I wired the money immediately. It arrived in in two hours uh, to the bank account uh, in Ukraine. So there is some, some bits of infrastructure functioning yet. So that is, that is good. But obviously, like everybody else, uh, it's hard to watch television. So I stopped looking at the screen and just checking the news for what's going on. Uh, for, the, for the visual imagery, I think is much more depressing than, than text, as far as I'm concerned. And we are trying to keep a very, very minimum conversation about the war at home so that the kids don't get too much affected. Of course, everybody knows, but sort of not, 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 not to do what we did during COVID, discussing pandemic and how many, uh, you know, the, the curve one, the, the, the second wave, all that stuff, just to make a very different type of, of crisis management. Now trying to keep children at least not totally obsessed about uh, the war and their grandparents, of course, they're very worried. Thanks. Thank you, Vlad, for also uh, this uh, moving uh, account. Um, Michael, you have uh, a long history and uh, relationship with the Ukraine. You were uh, three weeks ago uh, doing research in southeastern Ukraine, uh, including Mariupol, and uh, you just now, yesterday night, you you came back driving from the Slovakian-Ukraine uh, border, uh, picking up uh, people, friends uh, from the Ukraine, driving them into safety. 
please share share some of the impressions that you have made over the last couple of days. Well, <clears throat> thank you. Well, first of all, let me just start by saying this is an incredible crime that we're witnessing now, an unforgivable crime. And I don't know what world is going to be, you know, rising out of the rubble of this of this mess, but. Uh, it, it won't be a good one if Putin gets his way. Now, having said that, um, I want to first refer to what uh, to, to the victims of this um, of this crisis in the major in the major cities. And uh, as we know, as Tatiana said, as Vlad said, there's rather indiscriminate shelling. There is um, there are attacks at all times of the day, but especially at night. But then, the, and, and the, these are, gen, you know, the, the, the victims are general. Anyone can be struck by that. But then we should also remember that there are people who are explicitly individually targeted. I don't know if you remember uh, Joe Biden's warning that according to American intelligence, they'd have a uh, you know, blacklist of people that would have to be uh, liquidated. And uh, people sort of dismissed that, uh, even so, you know, so-called pundits said, well, you know, we'll see about that. But the fact is that that kind of blacklist has already existed for a long time. For example, the, the so-called Donetsk Republic has had a blacklist, which includes, a, you know, quite a few people I know. And who, uh, yeah, the, 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 exactly the hit list, as Vlad says. And uh, I think we have to take this very very carefully. These are people who are personally very, very deeply exposed. I would be willing to welcome them at any moment in, in Sweden, but those who I've spoken with say, no, this is my home. And these are people of, that have often already been displaced from Donetsk. This is our home. Now we're going to defend our city. And the same people who have been talking with having dinner just a few weeks ago, uh, in, having dinner with just a few weeks ago in Mariupol, I'm seeing these people sending me pictures of the Molotov cocktails that they've been preparing. So this is a very, uh, it's, it's a quite incredible situation, but these are people who are no longer willing to be displaced once again. Now it's the moment of fight and nothing else. Now, having said that, uh, what are my impressions? I mean, there, there's many things I could talk about when it comes to, Mariupol, I'm not personally involved. I don't have family in Ukraine, for example. I'm not Ukrainian, but I have had a second home there for quite a few years. I've started doing work there since 2009, especially in the, in the eastern part. So this is a very visceral, uh, very visceral feeling that I, I, I get from this, uh, from this war. Uh, I was, as, um, as Marcus said, uh, at the Slovak... Ukrainian border on Sunday. I spent most of the day there. And it was a very um, intense experience. And uh, what I, it was tragic, but at the same time, it gave me a sense of joy as well. Not joy to see the refugee flow, obviously, but joy to see that Slovak society has mobilized in a way that I didn't expect was possible. The welcoming of refugees at the border on the Slovak side is quite well organized and it is good given the circumstances. What I also noticed is that there's two flows of people coming into, the, into Slovakia. It is um, women and children and also some elderly women and men, Ukrainian, and then very many uh, 
you typically Middle Eastern young men who are, were students in universities in Ukraine. And this morning I was reading on the BBC about how this group has been uh, complaining about perceived racist attitudes among the uh, Ukrainian border guards. And uh, I, of course, I, and, and this was with reference to Poland. I can't say anything about Poland, but I do have a story that I can tell you about this situation. And that is that we have to take it with, with a grain of salt because I have uh, understood, I've, I've heard reports now about fights also on the Ukrainian side between border guards and, um, and foreign citizens who were being taken away from the line. And they thought that they were being um, not allowed to leave the country, but it was actually a misunderstanding. They were being put in a separate queue for, for foreign citizens. And there was a case of uh, suspected, or there was a complaint about racism being at work in that case, whereas in reality it was about separating Ukrainian citizens where there are, you know, men, for example, can't leave the country from foreign citizens that all leave. So this is just a, a, you know, a minor, a minor detail that we have to be a little bit careful when talking about such issues. Same thing about uh, the... um, racism that uh, Poles and Hungarians and Slovaks have been accused of in relation to um, uh, Middle Eastern, mainly refugees in the past. There's no doubt that that has has been the case. But reviving that thought at the moment is not quite adequate. Why? Because we're looking in this case at a flow of women and children, largely. We're not looking at a flow of uh, well, a a rather mixed flow as was in the past. We know exactly right now that there is a war there and there are women and children crossing the border. So I would really appreciate if the, if the media and pundits could refrain from commenting on that particular issue. Once Mm -hmm. again, uh, Ukrainian society does have a significant um, racist streak. Yes, we, we cannot deny that you will hear things from, you know, people that you wouldn't generally hear in other countries, but that's not the point here. This is not, uh, th- th- that's a completely different issue. So this was one, one thought that really disturbed me from this morning's reporting. Again, I don't know what it looks like on the Polish border, but what I saw in Slovakia was very much the result of a misunderstanding as far as I can tell. But then again, I wasn't standing on the Ukrainian side, but, but it seemed pretty, pretty clear. So that was about that. Now I've, I just came back last night, and I, if necessary, I'll go back again to uh, Slovakia, Poland. Well, j- j- just to pick up on, on Michael's point, you know, we're talking about 677,000 people crossing the border in what five, uh, five days. Exactly. We had, we had 1.7 million in the entire first installation of the war from the Donbass, right? Well, 1.7 million in Ukraine and probably a million and above uh, in, in Russia. But th- those were a longer period moves. Whereas here you have a, a constant, constant, uh, not a strict, a river of people flowing out, women and children, and not just people, just women and children, given that men are not allowed to cross unless they have three children with them of their own uh, birth. Uh, and also we need to, to remember how many internally displaced people are now. Right, so the entire Ukraine is internally displaced, apart from people who are stuck in in, in the cities that we need to mention, and 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 people, uh, you know, struggling in in those big cities in Ukraine, 
I mean, my, my heart goes out to, to people in Shastya yeah, and Sanitsa Luhanska who've been taken over by, by the Russians uh, as we speak. Uh, and, and, and they have survived, what, seven years of, of, of constant sort of frontline activity. And now they've lost that fight for, for, for this week. Uh, I'm sure and not, not for long, but, but you know, though, I mean, the experience of those people is, is absolutely incredible. I have a friend who was a local entrepreneur in Donetsk who stood there, who stayed in Donetsk because of the, you know, trying to survive as a businessman uh, who texted me now after five years, saying where he is and, and, and asking me if they need any help, um, which is the most sort of warming. And really, I, I, it's hard for me to emotionally describe my feeling, having heard from somebody five years, thinking whatever can happen, uh, he's asking me whether he can help. So that's, that's a very touching. Thank you. If I may, to add um, a couple of points. Um, there are, of course, different groups um, uh, in, in Ukraine suffering along with Ukrainian citizens. Yeah, so foreign students, some, I think someone mentioned, Kharkiv was um, and is a, is a big academic center with many universities with thousands of students um, studying there. Uh, there was a report in the media that uh, I think two days ago, a student from in India died, uh, was was killed by by. Um, yeah, and and now the, 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 there is a group of uh, Indian students trying to get out from from the city with the white flag. Of, yeah, so I don't know what what is going to happen. To these people, and and actually, some some students when the war, the conflict in Donbas started uh, eight years ago, so the students from Lugansk, for example, they um, moved to other parts of Ukraine to continue their studies, and some of them moved to to Kharkiv, and it's like an ongoing nightmare, I think, also for for them. But I also wanted to mention another group. Um, I read some reports in social media, like Belarusians who fled to Ukraine from the Lukashenko regime. Yeah? And they are now in a very difficult situation because Belarus is about to enter the war on the Russian side. And uh, being a Belarusian citizen in Ukraine uh, is, uh, well, <clears throat> it's not very cozy. And, and these people are also concerned about what, what will happen to them. So we should, of course, remember about different groups uh, which are kind of victims of this collateral damage. Yeah? I think we're already talking a little bit about different groups and different peoples uh, within the Ukraine. Um, this idea of a division between uh, Putin's idea of a division between Russian people and Ukrainian people. I was wondering from your own perspectives and experiences, um, how would you characterize um, identity politics, these, these divisions, or um, how are they worked out within society and in the places that you're familiar with? So maybe Tatiana, if you want, if you want to start. Yeah, I <clears throat> I would like to say something on this. <clears throat> um, 
Well, I, I think because you, you ask, uh, asked us about these divisions into Russians and Ukrainians and about this Putin's rhetoric, if this kind of creates these divisions. And I, I do not um, uh, fully agree with, with this kind of perspective because uh, <clears throat> in, in Eastern Ukraine, uh, um, there is no cut, clear cut um, identification into Ukrainians and Russians. And there are many ways of being Ukrainians. For some people, it uh, might be like being ethnic Ukrainian or speaking Ukrainian. For others, it could be like being Russian speaking Ukrainian. It's a, a very kind of civic understanding way of what Ukrainian identity is. And uh, so I think this was um, never such a clear-cut division uh, into two coherent groups. And I, I will get back to it um, uh, uh, in a moment, but I wanted to say what, what Putin is actually doing. He is not saying uh, they are Russians and they are Ukrainians. Yeah? He, he is actually saying there are no Ukrainians at all. Yeah? It's, it was invented by Lenin. There was never like a, such a nation, Ukrainians. We were all like Russians. We are Adin Narod. We are one single people. And, and this is his, his rhetoric uh, um, you can find in, uh, in his um, talks, you can find in his interviews, you can find in his famous article, historical article, which, uh, yeah, on... Um, I forgot the title of it on historical um, foundations of the Ukrainian-Russian relations or something like that. This crazy, crazy kind of historical essay he, he wrote, which reveals actually how he understands the, the, the issue of Ukraine and how he's going to solve it. And so his, his answer is that there is no Ukraine. These are just our people Russian speaking or Ukrainians who anyway, everybody understands Russian, but, but they all are part of us, yeah? They, they belong to us. They are occupied by a Nazi government, I don't know, as a result of, 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 uh, of a fascist putsch in Kiev, and this Ukrainian government is a puppet government of the Western uh, powers of, of NATO and, and uh, the EU. And if we liberate people from this puppet government, they will be happy to join us. So this is his rhetoric. And I don't see how this rhetoric can actually divide Ukrainians because Ukrainians, all, but most of them have this idea that, that Ukraine exists. It's a separate entity. It has its own traditions. It, it uh, existed before Ukraine became independent as a Soviet Ukrainian Republic. So even like older generation, people were raised with this idea that there is a Ukrainian nation, that there is a Ukrainian culture, that there is a Ukrainian identity. Yeah? And, and you cannot just tell them, okay, we are back to the Russian empire uh, and, and you are just the province of Russia. And I think what Putin is doing, it cannot be, uh, I mean, it, it can only unite people and not divide them. And I, I, uh, 
agree, of course, that in 2014, the so-called Russian Spring in Eastern Ukraine, uh, uh, it had this kind of polarizing effect on, on the local communities and there were a lot of uh, uh, even street violence, right? We all know this, but in, in the last years, actually the situation <clears throat> uh, was more or less uh, stable and, and um, this kind of uh, polarization, um, I, I mean, there were all kinds of ideological divisions in local communities. There were people who hated the mayor of Kharkiv because he uh, was not Ukrainian enough in, in, in the eyes. There were people who supported this mayor, but these were all not, not like a clear-cut division. These were all kind of um, conflicting visions of what is it to be a Ukrainian city or a Russian-speaking Ukrainian city for Kharkiv. But it was not like never a question, Kharkiv should belong to, to Russia or um, there is no Ukraine at all, yeah? And, and um, that's why I think what is happening now, it's, it's, it's a huge uh, shock, first of all, for those people who, who were not radically opposing Russia, who, who, who had relatives in Russia, who he kept, you know, reading Russian books and, and uh, believing in, I don't know, Russian, great Russian culture. And they, some of them were unhappy that they, I don't know, that they are forced to, to use Ukrainian in official communication. They complained about U Ukrainization. But, I mean, if you are shelled by the Russian uh, army, uh, it does not really matter. <laughs> Uh, Vlad, uh, do you have anything uh, you'd like to add? Or, or well, I've, I've, been, uh, I've, I've been quite uh, surprised is not the right way. I've been uh, astonished to see such a strong uh, defend, you know, de defiant mood in, in, in cities like in, across southern Ukraine, yeah, in the Melitopol, in Berdyansk, uh, not to mention Mariupol, of course, and Kharkiv. Uh, and obviously all the cities on the on the Russian northern border, uh, and the stories that we hear of, of normal people with their heroic deeds and acts, stopping the, the Russian invasion, uh, stealing tanks, uh, doing various savage activities to stop the movements. Uh, it, it is it is a, a united sort of front. So I think, um, unfortunately, Putin believes in his own sort of story, uh, but fortunately given that access to the Russian propaganda channels have been uh, cut in Ukraine in 2014 with very success. I think the Ukrainians themselves do not, haven't heard that, uh, those um, idiotic claims. And has that poison, poison has only affected, unfortunately, the Russian population. And, and many of us would probably argue that most of this propaganda is for the internal use, not just external, but for internal use to make sure that people you know, go and fight. I call from Ukraine, sorry. <laughs> yeah, we heard that. Um, Michael, is, is there anything you'd like to add from your own experiences of, of being yeah. in uh, being Ukraine um, on this identity pods? How, how has it worked out uh, uh, in different places? Well, I, actually, I'd like to pick up a little bit about on what Vlad was saying about the um, the propaganda and its lack of effect. Now, 
uh, I've been um, I've been going to Mariupol for a, a while now, and actually a year and uh, a year and a half ago, I even conducted a survey uh, with the with the field support of uh, of the Center for Social Indicators, which is connected to the Kiev Institute of Sociology, which is you know a, a, a well known polling agency in Ukraine, and there we um, asked about belief in locally um, anchored conspiracy theories. And one of the most important local, uh, well, irrational belief is that the shelling of the city on the 24th of January 2015 was uh, purported by the Ukrainian armed forces. Now, a majority of the population believes that this is the case. And no, uh, no, nothing has actually changed the population's views about this issue, at least until a few weeks ago. What has happened in this past week is difficult for me to say. But one thing that I do fear is that part of the population will hang on to the narrative that these, it's not the Russians that are doing this. It's a narrative of denial. This can't be the Russians. It must be the Ukrainian armed forces. Or if it's the Russians, it's absolutely by mistake and for a very good reason. Now, I don't know if this is what people are thinking now, but I do know that the city was violently attacked in the past, not only on the 24th of January 2015, but on other occasions too, even though the, the 24th of January was the, the, the clearly the worst case. And no counter-propaganda has succeeded in displacing that narrative from the city. And it's a narrative that's held by people that even might have, if not pro-Ukrainian opinions, at least not explicitly pro-Russian ones. Now, uh, again, I don't know what's happened during this past week. It's impossible for me to, to, to have an opinion about that. My gut feeling would be that this will have opened people's eyes, but I'm not sure about it. So the question of identities. Uh, Mariupol is uh, not a city, as I, as I experience it, where ethnic identity has any significance at all. Uh, but ethnic, ethnicity is being mobilized, particularly from the pro-Russian side, as a, um, you, you know, a factor that, can, that certain groups can, can cling on to in the city. I did interview some um, uh, represent, and generally speaking, I wouldn't be talking about my results before publishing them, but this is an extreme situation. I have interviewed uh, hardcore pro-Russian elements in this city, both recently and in the more distant past, in, including people related to the Dener. And there, among these groups, the Russian, we are Russians narrative is actually important, but this is not a big group. It's not a big group, but it's a group that is very, um, very eager to to uh, capitalize on this particular situation. I can imagine this is not a group that will have changed its mind with the Russian shelling of Mariupol. It's a group that is going to be welcoming it. It's a small group, but it's there. The pro-Ukrainian cluster in this city is very active and. Uh, it's very uh, likable in many ways. It is to a significant extent consisting of IDPs from Donetsk who moved to Mariupol. 
the, the you know the most prominent figures are in fact IDPs, and these are people who are going to defend the city at any cost. Uh, for them, I would say that ethnicity is not the issue at all. It's not about Ukrainianness. This is about defending our our common home. It doesn't matter what language you speak, what books you read, and so forth. So there, there is a difference. The pro-Ukrainian cluster, and okay, the pro-Ukrainian cluster is also mixed. There are different groups in it. There's no doubt about that. But what I have experienced in Mariupol is the, the, the civic nationalist side of it. Uh, there is a cluster of um, you know, more radical rights-inspired people also in Mariupol, like in other places. It's quite small, and it, it, it doesn't set the dominant narrative. That's, that I would say for, for sure. So what you have, and then in the midst of these two polls, you have a big group who doesn't, who you know, perceives itself as being part of Ukraine, but who can be influenced. It, that is my impression, at least. And we know that among this group, the majority are those who will say the Ukrainians shelled Vastochny, the eastern neighborhood. And it, it's not just my survey that shows this. There, it, there, it's a quite well-known problem in the city. So the Russian propaganda works. Another example of how the Russian propaganda works, and now I'm, I'm going to refer to an article that I, I have coming out soon, but isn't published yet, is the effect of the Belarusian elections. Now, the survey that I conducted uh, back in 2020, well, it was conducted during the, the summer. And both before, the fieldwork was conducted both before and after the election in Belarus, the, you know, the, the rigged election where Lukashenko secured his own power. Well, you know the story. And what I can tell you is that belief in the uh, idea that there is a Western or, you know, that George Soros and Bill Gates are secretly running the country increased substantially between before the Belarusian election and after the Belarusian election. Disbelief dropped from about 30%. Disbelief in, in the, the narrative of the Soros gates running the, you know, running the country. It dropped from 30% to 10%. 30% isn't a lot, but 10% is very little. And if you were to break that 10% between the 9th of August and the 20th of August, which is right after the election and the period after the 20th of August, which is after the massive propaganda attack from Russia and also Belarus, then you'll see that after the 20th of August, disbelief dropped even more dramatically. Meanwhile, support for Lukashenko increased in Mariupol, also quite dramatically and counter to the trends elsewhere in the country. So the context is not the same as in cities such as Cherkasy or even Militopol, maybe. But I am of the firm belief that this is a, a turning point. The, the, Russia has gone too far for Mariupol. And, and presumably for, for, any, for any other city, so it's not just Mariupol. Of course. Yeah. Titania, did you want to add anything there to follow up on what Michael or Vlad was saying? Not not on this topic. I, I think uh, Michael is is uh, very 
much more knowledgeable on on all all of this um, conspiratorial uh, dimensions of what's going on. And I was distracted because a friend of mine from Kharkiv just sent me a message that that um, she is staying in my house uh, in Kharkiv, and it was um, uh, yeah the, the TV tower which is not far from my house. They uh, the Russian army tried to destroy it, yeah, and the the houses around they lost windows and and she was on her way to the cellar and and her hands is, uh, are still trembling and I was kind of trying to by listening to you I was trying to um, say something positive to her I'm sorry I uh, was not probably <laughs> too too attentive yeah, that's, uh, fully um, Vlad maybe Could you add on on these these uh, these dynamics, also your perspective of a geographical political economy in in the Ukraine? So, um, how do the divisions, the social, socioeconomic divisions that exist in the Ukraine, that also play out territorially? I I assume how how do they play out in in these war dy dynamics? Could you elaborate a bit on that? I think uh, the Western commentariat and media uh, are somewhat behind the curve. So the discussion about divisions, Western East, Russian-Ukrainian speakers, this and that, they're, they're all good discussions that probably warranted to be held back in 2004, back in 1991. Uh, but over the last 30 years, All the Soviet era divisions created by Soviet uh, propaganda, I think, have been gradually erased. Yes, obviously, there is a social class division between rich and poor. Uh, there is a certain division, of course, between urban and rural dwellers as in any country. The, the normal political science cleavages exist. Uh, left and right, maybe not really anymore. Uh, so gradually, I think we are looking at, at, at the Ukrainian nation, which is a civic, multilingual, multi-ethnic. Uh, but the biggest difference is that it is an identity which is based on the future, yeah, on the European aspirations, and is based on on the on 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 the on the vision of the future. Whereas the opposing identity is stuck in imaginary past, and I think more and more people in Russia starting to realize that is not even a real past that they have been sold, but they sold the imaginary past that never existed. Uh, I remember being uh, active in pro-independence movements uh, in 1990, 1991 in Donetsk. Uh, our opponents gave me a leaflet uh, that Ukrainians didn't exist. And that was produced during the First World War by the R Russian general staff. And that is where the idea of the Austro-Hungarian general staff invented Ukrainians originates from. And I read that leaflet, or pamphlet rather, I read the pamphlet, but okay intriguing intriguing line of thought uh, but at least that pamphlet had some kind of figures and facts in it that you could kind of discuss uh, produced in 1917 whereas you know Putin's article is just full of nonsense so he even degraded on, on the previous Russian imperial discourse of Ukrainians non-existing but at least the Russian imperial discourse had a three-legged 
three-headed eagle, right, of greater Russians, little Russians, and white Russians. Now he's tried to erase all of that, and has just one Russian nation stuck in 1945, marching on Red Square. Uh, and uh, I think that is, that is the biggest cleavage now. The European identity, civic, and uh, pro-democracy and, and pro-market forces versus uh, a crazy and dictatorial survival regime in Moscow. So yesterday, sorry, Marcus, yesterday I was interviewed by Associated Press TV. And, and the first question was, are Ukrainians different from Russians? And I thought, I, I think I opposed because I, I, I just, just sat there thinking, Jesus, because this is 2021, 2022. You know, this is, this is a question you could have asked 91, probably. Yeah. And I thought, oh, gosh, we've got, we've got to kind of the Western media and the Western commentary has to kind of catch up a little bit uh, and maybe read, read, read around and maybe look at the news a bit more carefully. You did research on urban shrinkage in in Ukrainian cities, and yeah, um, how so? And and you just mentioned the idea that there is like uh, a big part of the population, east and west in Ukraine, oriented towards an accession to or an, an entry into the European Union. I mean, is is that? Is that also the vision that uh, shrinking cities or, or the inhabitants of a shrinking cities uh, have as a kind of as a hopeful anchor? How, how does it how does this shrinkage play out in terms of aspirations and, and hopes in the population? Well, I think in shrinking cities of which there are well, they're creating them every day now. Uh, the over the last 20 years, the process of deindustrialization has finally accumulated to the level people understand that all trusty industries are not going to be revived and they're gone. And therefore, all the aspirations that maybe people have in the 1990s that you know the collapse of the of the local economy is because of the collapse of Soviet Union. Uh, rather than the collapse of Soviet Union was, was because of the collapse of the, of the national economy. Gradually, people realized that, you know, coal steel isn't, isn't going to be a future. And, and so you've had quite a dramatic development of, of knowledge-based economy. Uh, yes, it is clustered. Yes, it is tiny in terms of people involved, employment-wise, but massive IT sector that had to be evacuated from Donetsk in 2014, and had to be now evacuated from Dnipro. And so there are lots of new, new sectors of the economy that's been growing. And, and as you may, may or may not remember, uh, before the beginning of the 2000, before the current war, and before the 2014, Donetsk has recovered and was 2.7 times richer city than it was in Soviet times, and Mariupol as well. So actually, Yes, the, 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 the proper Rust Belt of Torres and Ulidar and, 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 and all the other coal mining settlements uh, were dead and are dead. But the bigger cities have, have managed to, to not only recover, to actually grow. So population shrinkage and economic growth has been decoupled in a lot of places in Ukraine, as it is decoupled in, in globally as well. So Michael wants to come in. 
Yeah, I, I think what uh, Vlad's saying here is very important. And but, but at the same time, there's we have to remember there is a popular belief, we could even call it a popular identity, that we are a coal and steel region anyway. And if you take, for example, the city of Stakhanov slash Kadyevka, in eastern uh, in the in, in well in in the ter- territory that's under the control of Luhansk People's Republic today, they haven't had an active coal mine since 1995, but they are still a Shakhtyorsky Gorod, a, a coal miner's city. Why is it that that label doesn't go away? Well, in that particular kind of city, it's because uh, new uh, new branches haven't really come to the come to the fore the way they have elsewhere. But then in other cities, including Mariupol. There is also a strong sense that we are the Mitalurgichiski Gora, the, the, the steelworkers city. And why is it like that? Even though the number of workers in the steelworks, there's two of them in the city, has dropped from about a hundred something thousand people to down to down to about thirty thousand. The city has four hundred something thousand people at the moment. Well, maybe less if people have left now, but it's it's a big city. Thirty thousand people are a lot of people, but it's not 110, 120,000 people. Why is the city still a metallurgiczki gorod? And if you were to believe the local media, almost nothing else, even though there is quite a lot of small and medium-sized business that is actually growing in the city. If, as one of the local activists in Mariupol told me, one of the biggest items of fake news in Mariupol that circulates constantly is that it's uh, that the city is entirely dependent on the steelworks. The city is partly, of course, dependent on the steelworks, but the steelworks essentially control the narrative in the city. Why do they control the narrative? Because they also control the city politically. And um, this is a problem because it's, um, it reproduces a mindset that isn't very helpful in the city. And it's a, it's a rather Soviet mindset. And that has to go. And here I would say that Akhmetov and his Mietin Vests have to take part of the blame. Of course, Akhmetov can't be blamed for what the Russians are doing, obviously. But, uh, but the fact that Mietin Vest completely controlled the, the local media uh, in, in its favor in a way to give the, uh, in a way that was giving the impression that the city didn't exist without them has been a problem. And in doing so, they, the Mechinvest very much recycled Soviet tropes about the, uh, the you know, the heroic metal workers and, and, and that, that kind of stuff. And um, of course, we also know that the steel workers have been mobilized in the past against the DNR to some extent. But uh, since then, the, uh, the, the pattern has returned to, to the, uh, the, the previous one. And... This, I would say, if you know, if we're talking about Ukrainian versus Russian identities, that's not the main issue at play, at least in the eastern part of the country. The main issue at play is anachronistic Soviets, industrial-based urban identities versus something new, versus a future, as, as, as Vlad was saying. And, and, and I think here we have quite, quite, you know, this is not a Ukrainian issue because, you know, starting shrinking cities. Think of Detroit, a, you know, a city that has been hostage to its industry and the city that has been killed by its industry. But the city still has that big three association with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, and, and then you get into the party political machines, which, of course, also are, are, non, are non-Ukrainian invasion, in, invention. 
so there is that political economy aspect there, which is beyond even beyond Soviet, post-Soviet, or, or, or particular oligarchs. It is a, a, a wide issue, which I think people studying shrinking cities have been dealing with since about 1993. There was an interesting article in Urban Studies uh, on, on lock-in and how the local elites connected to declining industry prevent the emergence of, of new industries. Um, so uh, there is a theoretical background for this. It's not, it's not just Mariupol. Yeah, or, yeah or, of course. Or just a, a short footnote to this discussion. In September last year, I happened to, to spend some time in Lviv Oblast, and I was for one week in Chervonograd, which is um, a minor, uh, also um, a min minor uh, town. Yeah, it was created after Second World War, when this part of uh, this part of the Polish territory was given. Um, to Ukraine, yeah, it, it was the last like land swept between Soviet Ukraine and Poland, and they started to develop the coal industry there. So it's it was like a um, tiny town before a Polish town, and it became like Soviet Chervonograd uh, um, industrial town around this this coal industry, and it actually faces. Uh, very similar problems to to uh, those cities you were talking about in in Donbas, um, because um, yeah, because this industry is is, is um, needs structural reforms. Yeah, so it's it's um, um, people are not paid for months and and they keep protesting and the whole infrastructure of of the city is very much like the Soviet mono town. Um, and if you go to this city, you, you will not believe this is Western Ukraine. The idea of Western Ukraine, you know, in opposite to the Eastern Ukraine, to, to Eastern Ukraine is like you have this beautiful Halitian uh, towns. Yeah, but this is a Soviet town with Soviet um, architecture and, and city planning and, um, and a, a kind of cognitive dissonance you get there. It's so full of Ukrainian uh, national symbolic and, and they are actually proud to be the first town to get rid of the Lenin monument in um, 1990, even before Lviv. Mm -hmm. And uh, I knew somehow that this was this town where they first, uh, for the first time in Ukraine, they, uh, they um, <clears throat> um, removed Lenin. But I never thought about why Chervonograd. And then when I came there and started to talk to people, I realized it was Chervonograd for good reason, because it was a combination of this kind of national mobilization, Narodny Ruch, and uh, like national intelligentsia in, in Western Ukraine, and the, the very kind of strong um, labor mobilization and, and uh, minor strikes which were all over Ukraine, only in Donbass it was not about, um, it did not have this, maybe this anti-communist agenda, but in Western Ukraine it had. And actually this was this Soviet miners who uh, removed Lenin from, from, from this, uh, this plinth. So I, I, I think it's uh, also an example that, that our kind of binary vision of Ukraine as like industrial, 
cities are more like Sovietized and, and they have this kind of, um, you know, like more pro-Russian population and, and, and uh, more kind of Soviet identity. And then the like more European cities in the West and they have an identity based more on like the historical ties with Europe. Yeah, I think it's, it's much more complicated on the ground. <clears throat> Yesterday we've um, seen images of uh, tanks of uh, a queue of, I don't know, 50 or 60 kilometer of tanks uh, lining up to, to enter or encircle Kiev. Um, and I, I assume probably something similar is happening around Kharkiv and maybe other cities as well. And I was wondering um, what, to the extent that you know from, from the people still holding on in, in those cities, I mean, what, what is their expectation of what, what's going to happen? I mean, I mean, maybe what is their, their sense of um, hope uh, still remaining here? No, I mean, it, it seemed at least for, for me as an outsider, as, like, as in such an uh, overwhelming um, mobilization of, of military that's now um, about to crack into those, those cities. So, so, so what, what's the, the expectation here that the, hopefully the Russian military will sooner or later collapse uh, the longer the, the war keeps going, that that the West will in one way or another step in or that the, that the Ukrainian military in, in, in a very brave maneuver will be able to, to defend those, those cities and those sites. So can you tell me a bit about it? Yeah, I think this, uh, sorry. These are good questions, but um, uh, very difficult to answer because the situation is changing all the time. And uh, uh, what I think what people thought like the first two days of invasion and what they think now is not the same. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, I guess many people, especially uh, women with children, they would, of course, uh, be happy to leave to, the, to leave the city to, to go to a safer uh, part of the country. But uh, with Kharkiv, it's, it's very difficult because it seems more dangerous to move than to stay, yeah? Um, and, and, and of course, there are people who are prepared to, uh, to fight and to defend the city. There are people who are determined to stay because um, some of them, they just cannot move. We know this from, from, uh, from Donbass. So some families just cannot move because um, they have parents who cannot be transported easily. Yeah? And, and uh, uh, all the people or uh, so it's, it's, um, it's, I think different in, in uh, different cases and uh, the sociological surveys published I don't know yesterday today say that 80% uh, Ukrainians believe that Russia can be defeated um, 
again, what you make of these numbers, I think uh, now this is the moment of uh, the peak of kind of mobilization in the Ukrainian society. Also the signals that the Ukrainian government is giving are um, kind of keeping this uh, spirit high. Yeah? And, and Zelensky is actually amazing in, in this, this um, you know, this uh, communication with with the Ukrainian society and and uh, he has the highest <laughs> uh, support um, ever and um, for how long will it um, hold I don't know and uh, of course after days and and weeks of such a um, yeah such fights and 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 um, use of heavy weapons, of course, people can be demoralized. And, and uh, I know more and more people also leaving Kiev, those who said we are not going to leave, but uh, seeing what is happening to other cities, I think they are using their ch chances to, to, to leave. And yeah, I think it's a very difficult situation. Well, I, I think there is a, a, a growing and ever-burning sense of hatred that all people in Ukraine now have. And therefore, I think that sense of hatred is going to uh, drive the fight until, until it's victory. I don't see any demoralization. The conversation I'm having is, on the one hand, get fuel, get parents out of the house, you know, how, what are the safe routes out of Kiev or out of whatever place from A to B, where the checkpoints are very sensible, pragmatic and productive conversation. At the same time, we need night vision, we are, we, are, we are low in ammo. Could you get us this? Could you get us that? So there is a, a fighting spirit on the other hand and a recreation spirit, but, but not, not, not a panicky sort of runaway spirit, but qu quite a strategic conversation. And I think those two different parallel conversations that I'm overhearing every day uh, gives me um, even more hope and that I had before, that uh, whatever happens, um, the end result will be a victory uh, for Ukraine. And I think uh, the strangling of the Russian economy by ever increasing sanctions will eventually uh, deal quite a massive blow to, to regime in Moscow, which I think it will not be able to recover from. And soon enough, uh, a couple of weeks from now, we might be discussing the danger of the, of the Russian state collapsing and disintegration of the largest nuclear arsenal in the world. I, I quite, quite clearly see that to be a possibility. I'm not saying that this will happen, but I, I, would, I would put a little bit of money on it as well now. I, mean, I, I would definitely agree with Vlad, with Vlad. My impression here is that Russia is actually collapsing. It might, it might have the upper hand militarily because... Well, you know, it's obvious, obvious why, but this is Putin's end. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but sooner than later. Thanks, thanks to all of you for for uh, giving us your time and these, these great insights. Um, just one last question: um, for people listening uh, to urban research is mainly our main audience, you know, but more generally. Um, perhaps activists, social scientists generally, uh, what should they be doing? What kind of 
is there any kind of contribution they can make? How can they engage with the uh, the situation uh, in, in a positive way? Is there any, anything that they can do? Michael, maybe you would like to start on that. Fund the army, help fund the army. That's, I, I, and, and, and influence public opinion in Western countries to help Ukraine as much as possible. Yeah, unfortunately, we have in the West a very large uh, pseudo-left lobby that, that is obsessed about the so-called American hegemony and looks through that particular bizarre uh, angle at everything that happens. So the deaths of children, women, elderly men, vacuum bombs do not touch their hearts. A fucking vacuum bomb is exploding in a city of three million. And you're talking to me about American hegemony. I'm sorry, I, I, I have little passion for the discussion anymore and quite a violent response. And I think the, we have to get out of that little bubble of discussing Foucault and Lefebvre and, and God knows what and understand that this is a new world and we have to fight and we have to protect democracy and freedom because there are very bad people. Yes, threatening us every day. And if I may just add one thing to what Vlad is saying, among academics, there are not only those who are sometimes to a, as a, a, a pseudo leftist academics, but there are people who are literally and very dangerously collaborating with the Russian side. To give you a clear name that has made himself visible by repeating the usual, this is the West fault mantra in the media and, and RT among others. There's a professor here in Norway whose name is Glenn Deason. Remember that name. He, um, he is the kind of person that we have to now counteract with all our, our abilities. He has the right to say whatever he likes, of course, but he has also, he has to be countered. And there are unfortunately quite a few people like that. Many of the people of the, uh, well, of the, of the so-called pseudo-leftists that Vlad and, 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 and also at the far, far right, but they're not very common in the academic world. Many of these seem to have finally turned over the past few days, but not until, at least this is my impression, judging from my, my circle, but not without saying, yeah, but on the other hand, NATO shouldn't have blah, 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 blah. But yes, Russia is wrong. We, we have to also get away from that. We have to understand that this is purely a war in which one country is trying to conquer another one. It's a war of aggression, nothing else. No, no issue regarding American hegemony, nothing in that direction. Pure conquest war. Yesterday, I, um, in my, my despair, I wrote... Um Facebook post about what's going on in Kharkiv. And a lot of friends commented from Ukraine, but also from Russia. And I actually started now writing in Russian again, because I feel like um, Ukrainians know anyway, but we have to to reach people who, who, I don't know, who speak Russian in other countries. And and then there were various responses and people said we need no fly zone we need more sanctions we need this and that we need uh, american um, um spets to to kill putin we <laughs> so various recipes 
and someone wrote uh, we need to to push for reforming like russian studies in the west because they are so kind of um, the whole hierarchies of of knowledge and and research and and the the categories uh, we are using they are so kind of russia centered and uh, I said it would be easier for Ukraine to join NATO than to reform Russian studies. But <clears throat> um, I, I think what what you said, uh, Michael, is, is um, and and lot yeah about um, uh, yeah about how to deal with this for for us as as scholars. Uh, we have to, 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 to be reflective about what um, language we are using, what, what categories we are using. And of course, journalists are often just, they don't have time to think, yeah? And they re repeat kind of, uh, uh, you know, schemas and, and, and uh, stereotypes uh, and, uh, just reproduce the same kind of sheet. If I may add, journalists also have to overcome the issue of both sideism. Yeah. Which is a, a huge problem. There is a deeply ingrained feeling in the media that we have to show both sides, but both sides are not equally valuable in this case. There is a good side and there's a bad side. It seems to me that's finally trickled down into the media, but not completely. And then they have to be very, very careful not to play into the, the, the Russian narrative. As I mentioned at the beginning, what, what was the BBC doing this morning? They were saying, oh, Ukrainian border guards are being racist without really you know, having proper evidence for that. I'm, but what does that do? That plays into the narr narrative of Ukrainians being Nazis. And we don't even know what actually happened in these cases. But what I know from the Slovak case is that there was a very clear misunderstanding. Those people were afraid that they weren't going to be let out of Ukraine, whereas, in fact, they were simply being put in a line for foreign citizens, which was a faster line. So we have to really get, we have to be very, or the media should really be careful about what, what kind of narratives are promoted, even though they, of course, do that in the best of intentions in this case. Well, I think there's been some progress on, on, the, on the climate change debate when, when gradually took, you know, it's taken, what, 20 years, 10 years for the media to understand that a climate denialist and a scientist are not equal. So only now, recently, we started not to have these idiots on the screen talking nonsense, yeah, because, but, but it's taken decades for, mm. for, for, for established, well-established media outlets to understand this is not the case where you have ignorance versus science being, being equally presented. And I think COVID helped as well, right? So there is, there is progress on that front. But in terms of the, of the oh, this is complex and, and there are different angles, I think, I, think the, I always say, well, there were, there were lots of very rich Jews in Germany in 1933. Yes, they did exist. They did exist. There were Jews in Germany were richer than, than poor Germans. And how that fact is related to anything that happened afterwards and your personal relations to Second World War, on what side you were. Right? So these, these particular strange uh, bits of information 
are not, are not relevant for, for the actual black and white, I'm afraid, picture of, of a massive, horrible war that we are witnessing. Yeah, thank you, um, Michael, Tatiana, and Vlad, very much for, for this important uh, conversation, for this important insights that you're, you're bringing to us and to our listeners. Um, unfortunately, today, Irina Stokina couldn't join us. Um, uh, we all hope uh, she's doing well and, uh, and hopefully at, at, uh, uh, soon uh, we may congregate uh, the four of us here or the, the, the six of us, uh, counting Ross and myself in uh, again and uh, have another conversation on a more hopeful, on a more, uh, maybe more upbeat note. Um, having said so, yeah, again, very much appreciated taking your time uh, to be with us today. Oh, thank you, Marcus. Thank you, Ross. Thank you. Yeah. Our hearts go out to, to the people in uh, suffering from the effects of the war.